Good morning, guys. Grab a seat. How's everybody doing? Good. It is so good to be here with you guys. Maddie, Brandon, thank you so much. Uh, I, I would say this. It's not so much, I mean, it is that we're not fancy people. We're also just like woefully behind on technology all the time. Um, so we got our eyes on like kind of this unique thing. We, we don't really know what it's going to be, but we might ask you guys in a couple weeks to sign up for this thing called Facebook. Um, and so if that's something that interests you, um, we'll, we'll tell you more about it coming up. Um, one of the unique things that Mark does, because that's probably what we need to do, is talk about the book of Mark. Mark does all these little weird, uh, a, lot of, a lot of commentators will call it like he builds these like sandwiches, right? And, and what's meant by that is he'll often attach like in the middle, I, I would probably more call it like these bridge verses, right? That he kind of builds out, they're short, but they kind of attach each segment. So in a way, it kind of works like a sandwich where like on the, on the, on the two sides of it, You've got like the pieces of bread, but in the middle you've got like like the, the good stuff, right? And so we read ahead, and I want to I want to be clear, like we're, we're actually not going to touch today those first five verses in chapter 15, um, just so you don't think like, hey, he didn't even preach on that. But um, but it, that that's one that serves. That's an example that kind of ser- that that shows you that there, there's one in the text that we're going to look at today, and so they bridge the context, um, and right in the middle between these loaves of bread there's like the goodness, right? And that's what we want to get to even today, right? And we'll see how this kind of unfolds. Um, and if you're anything like, like my son, um, we'll, we'll make him a sandwich. We'll get out two pieces of bread and we'll just stack it full of meat and bacon and all the goodness. And then eventually what happens is like the two pieces of bread are on the side and he just eats all the, all the meat and the good stuff out of it. So that's kind of what we want to look at today. There's some sandwiching going on here in these stories, the story of Peter, but right in the middle, the meat of it is, is Jesus. And so um, we're going to get into this. One of the unique things also about Mark, um, and we've touched on this a little bit before, is um, Mark writes this, but a lot of scholars believe um, that a, a lot of what Mark is writing is from the firsthand experience of, of Peter. Now, now, Peter and Mark are, are friends, they're companions, they go out uh, beyond this, and they travel a lot together. So a lot of people believe that this is as much Peter's gospel and input and observation as much as it is Mark's. And so um, Mark writes a lot of this, but he's actually writing it from the lens and the perspective and the experience of his friend Peter, who was there, who saw that. And so he's dictating this for Peter. Now, that's important because much of what we're going to see today is not at all flattering to Peter, right? One of the commentaries that I read, uh, this guy, I think it's Sinclair Ferguson, he kind of like tried to prop up Peter and like kind of talk about his courage. But what we see from Peter today, again, it's not flattering to his character. We also see Jesus, right? In those moments that we talked about last week, entering into what, what really is his passion, right? Um, and, and he's not bringing his friends along. He hasn't asked them to enter into these situations with him. He's going it alone. He's going to face his passion alone because he has to, because he's the only one that can walk through these experiences that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning. Really, once you bridge the gap into Jesus kind of setting foot into the city and the triumphal entry, which is like, I think, chapter 11, it all changes. The tone of this all changes, right? Um, it's even hard as we're writing these sermons in some ways to go like, like, how would you even fit funny into this stuff? Because it's deep and it's, it's powerful stuff. And so we're going to find ourselves this morning in the middle of what really is this seemingly endless night 
for Jesus, right? Um, he's experiencing this alone, and the agony of it and the weight of it probably seems like it just persists. So let's kick this off right in verse 53, and we're going to read back through this together. So it says, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Right? So, so Jesus is being led to trial, although really ultimately what we know is that this is all about Jesus submitting to the Father's will. So, so really nobody's leading him anywhere. Um, but we got to unpack some of the culture and kind of the, the customs and, the, and really the laws around what's happening here to kind of get a better understanding of, of what's happening to Jesus as he submits to the Father's will. So as was typical of Jewish custom and law, um, and, and very different from ours, you go straight from arrest and being detained to, to trial, right? So there's no like getting locked up in county, right? You just, you just go straight from arrest to trial. There's, there's no county, there's no gruel for you, right? Thanks, Prison Mike, for that one. And um, they, they take him before like all the most powerful leaders now in the nation of Israel, right? So there's no higher human authority among Jewish culture than this group of leaders comprised what is known as the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is the highest court in the land. So think like Supreme Court. So the high priest who would be appointed and serve for a year would reside over the Sanhedrin for his time. And it fell within the scope of the authority of the Sanhedrin to try capital cases. Now, listen, I am far, far from an expert in first century Jewish law. I'm also like very far from an expert in 21st century American law. Everything I understand about the criminal justice system in the United States come from like watching Law and Order or John Grisham novels that I never read and just wait until they get turned into a movie. But there's like all these strict guidelines that were to be followed in order to prohibit the perversion of justice in ancient Israel. So the problem with what we see unfolding before us is they're basically breaking every rule in the book just to find one rule in the book that this guy Jesus may have broken. So let me just list a few here for you, right? Because most of this would be lost on us and we wouldn't understand. But the time of year that this is all taking place is off, right? It's not lawful to have a capital tri trial during an annual holiday. So the holiday that we find ourselves in right now in this story is the story of Passover, right? And the people are coming together and they're celebrating this. And so all capital trials would be suspended during that time frame, but they're bringing one to the Sanhedrin with Jesus. It's Really, it's the wrong time of day, right? A, a trial of this nature would have only taken place during daylight. The location is off. This was supposed to play, take place in the courts of the temple, and yet they've led Jesus to the home of the high priest, right? There's a lot more that this violates, but I think you get the point, right? This absolutely reeks of back alley justice, right? This is a total behind closed doors conspiracy. We, we know from like previous confrontations between Jesus and the religious elite in Jerusalem that they are just like hell-bent, and I, and I don't use that word flagrantly. I mean like the, the forces of hell are behind them bent towards arresting Jesus and putting him to death. But since they, they couldn't catch him ever really breaking any law or committing blatant blasphemy, 
they simply sidestep the justice system. As this scene begins to unfold, Mark informs us that, that Peter is actually watching all of this, right? Before his very eyes. He's curious, he's engaged, he wants to see what's going to happen to Jesus. Now remember, last week we looked at this story where Jesus predicts the denial, the betrayal of every single one of his friends. You will leave me, like when it comes time to stand up for me, you'll stand down, right? You'll deny that you even know me. So now Peter denied that. Peter's like, no way. Like I'm going to predict your prediction to be wrong, Jesus, and I'm, I will never, I'll, I'll die with you. And so now we see the fate of Peter, right? What happens to him? So verse 54, and Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. So this is the piece where like Sinclair Ferguson would say like, no, like this actually shows a lot of courage on Peter's part. So we can't throw him under the bus, but, but he does in the end do everything that Jesus predicts. So really we see Peter following this processional, right? And he's got some good field craft. He's following this processional and he's blending in, right? But, but to what end? Why is he following? Does Peter have a secret dagger stashed? up in his tunic? Is he going to perform more ear circumcisions, right? Is he going to spring an ambush with the other disciples and heroically rescue their rabbi? No. He's going to blend in. He's going to hide. He's going to sneak into the courtyard, and he begins fraternizing with the enemy. He sidles up to some of the very soldiers who had just arrested Jesus and brought him to the high priest's house. But Let's go back to that first part of the verse here. It says that he was following at a distance. And again, like, while that might be great, like if you're a spy and you're tailing someone, I don't think that Mark adds that little detail at a distance by mistake. I think he goes out of his way to point out a greater convicting truth to his readers. I think we're meant to see that there is this growing now relational distance between Peter and Jesus. Like, if you think about it, since Jesus has called Peter to follow him, he's grown this deep friendship and relationship through adversity, through intimacy, through all of these experience over the past few years. Like, over these years, Peter was probably, like, following so closely to Jesus, so attached to Jesus. He was probably, like, flat-tiring his sandals all the time. That's how close he was to Jesus. But now, He's following Jesus at some great distance. Now there's space between two friends. He's acted impulsively. Think about the scene that we were taken to at the dinner table where where all of the disciples are intimately like propping each other up, leaning into each other. There's no space. There's no distance between these friends, but now there's nothing but space and distance. Peter's acted impulsively. He's betrayed Jesus and now there's distance between them. Peter has abandoned all in any sense of costly and selfless discipleship for comfortable and safe observation of what's happening. I mean, he can't quite completely walk away from this. He's curious. He wants to see the fate of his friend, but he doesn't want to get too close out of fear that he might be associated with Jesus and then suffer the same fate. So the reality is, and we need, to, we need to get this, like there is no safe distance in following Jesus. Jesus never promises us safety or comfort as his disciples. He does call us 
to this. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him that we may suffer. He calls us to value him over everything else, including our very lives. He calls us to deny ourselves, to, to, to lose our life for his sake, to renounce all that we have, to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice to him, to, to not be friends of the world. That's the costly call of discipleship, and it doesn't include hedging our bets and following him at a distance. The reality is simply this. Jesus calls us into intimacy with him, right? Because from a distance, if we try to follow Jesus, if we hedge our bets, call it safe, attach ourselves to Jesus only when we want to, the problem with that is no transformation occurs at a distance. That's why Jesus would call us to stay in him, to abide in him, to stay close to him, to walk in intimate fellowship with him. Like how many of you over this past year, maybe, maybe some of you have been hedging your bets a little bit. Like, is it safe now to follow Jesus? Is it safe for me to stand up and say, like, I'm a follower of Jesus? And maybe some of you have been hedging your bets. I'm going to guess that a lot of you probably know people that over this past year and a half would say, like, I, I'm no longer, it's no longer safe to follow Jesus, and so I'm no longer going to follow Jesus. I'm out, right? I, I know people that have hedged their bets and decided I'm just out because it doesn't feel safe. The problem with that is it was never supposed to feel safe in this world to follow Jesus. So let's, let's keep moving here. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, right? So you, we should, we should, you should catch on to that. He's already arrested. He's already facing trial but the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree, and some stood up and bore false witness against him, right? So here's what's going on. They're trying to coerce and force testimony out of these witnesses. The problem is they didn't really like properly prep them first, right? So, so clearly there's all of these prearranged witnesses that, that stand up and try to say something about Jesus. How has Jesus like, had some like, break from the law? The, the problem is they cannot corroborate any of their stories. They, they can't even agree on the same lie. But it doesn't matter because they really have no desire to see justice served here, right? For them, the only verdict to be rendered is guilty. But they're also subverting justice by basically convicting Jesus before trial, right? The trial itself wasn't based on an overwhelming amount and damning evidence against Jesus. The trial was an attempt to find evidence that would support their already formed decision, right? So it's, it's completely backwards. Like there's no evidence, but they've already got him on trial. They've already sentenced him in some ways. They, they can't find two people that will say the same thing. So the issue with that is this, right? Um, the witnesses in Jewish law and custom here, they were the prosecution, right? So there's no prosecuting attorney. It's what is going to prosecute the defendant is the evidence of these witnesses. And you had to have at least, according to, to custom and law, you had to have at least two or more witnesses that were saying the same thing, that could speak to the same offense. Now that's taken from like Deuteronomy 17 and, and 19. You can kind of see the effects of that, right? Um, so you needed these two witnesses who could validate each other's statements. And yet in the case of Jesus, 
like witness after witness after witness steps up and attempts to accuse Jesus, but none of their testimonies match up, right? None of them can either think of anything that Jesus did or said that was criminal, nor could they even agree with each other on what that would be. So you have to kind of see this, right? The Sanhedrin, they're coercing fellow citizens of Israel to bear false witness against another citizen of Israel, against Jesus, right? Now there's a huge problem with that, right? Because it actually violates an even higher command in law. It violates the ninth commandment. If you flip to Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, it says that you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. But the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, is trying to coerce false testimony out of witnesses. So not only are they subverting justice here, but because they suffer from like very deep Jesus derangement syndrome, they're willing to, to actually ask the people of Israel, the people that the high priest was supposed to lead into flourishing and life and obeying God's commandments, they're actually asking them to violate the clear commands of God just to do away with Jesus. So, so the closest they get to any real accusation is found in verse 58, right? And it says this, we have heard him say, I will destroy this. Now, now this should sound familiar to you guys. Like, I will destroy this temple that it is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So, so does that sound like we've heard Jesus say something like that, right? Like that's what they're thinking. So this is kind of like a, a true, not true kind of situation. Back in Mark 13, Jesus had predicted, like we just walked through that a couple weeks ago, Jesus did predict the destruction of the temple, but he never said he was going to have anything to do with it. And while Mark doesn't record this, John records this little soundbite from Jesus that comes close to what he's being accused of here. It's in John chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So you kind of see how there's threads of like truth in that statement, but the problem is Jesus never said that he's going to tear the temple down, and he never said that he's going to rebuild it. What is Jesus is saying in John chapter 2 He's not talking about the physical structure of the temple here. He's talking about himself. He's saying that in that statement, which just reinforces like all the things that Jesse brought to us in, in her message. And he's saying like, I am now the temple, right? Like after I do what I'm about to do, the temple will be like useless to you. There, there was a time that you would go to the temple to be with God. But after this, you'll have me and I am God. So, so the reason, like despite this piece of evidence being a lie, that that is so important, it's this. If you threaten the temple, right, if you claim in any way that the temple will be harmed or destroyed, like it's a capital offense, punishable by death, right? Maybe the closest for us would be like, just go and try and touch the tomb of the unknown soldier and see what happens to you, right? It's that important to them. So don't threaten it. Don't say it's going to be destroyed. It's a capital offense punishable by death. But the problem is that's not what Jesus claimed at all. So then jump to verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. So the, the trial is stalling out. Despite all of their best efforts to, to level a charge against Jesus, to find some evidence to prove that he should be put to death, they come up empty-handed. Even the statement about the temple, they realize they can't charge him with. So the high priest 
jumps in because the trial is kind of stalling out. It's not going in the direction of the religious leaders. So the high priest just steps in and says, I'll just take care of this, like once and for all. So, so Jesus, like there's all these accusations against you. What do you have to say for yourself, right? Like, are you going to talk at all? And I love Jesus's response. What does he say? Nothing. Silence, right? He just stands there in all 10, just going like, I got nothing to say. I'm not going to answer these questions. I'll speak when I want to speak. And so Jesus, who has been facing nothing but the hostility of false accusations and lies for hours, standing front of the one person who has all the power to determine his fate, the high priest, and Jesus doesn't respond. He says nothing. He doesn't defend or save himself. He doesn't even try. It's also really a direct fulfillment of Isaiah's messianic prediction from chapter 53, verse 7, where he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so Jesus in that moment is not necessarily being defiant. He's being God. He's fulfilling God's promise through Isaiah. It's like, I can't do that. Like someone speaks a lie or like a falsely accuses me. Like you, you've probably had that happen to you. Like what's your first reaction? Like I want to go scorched earth on them, right? I want to protect my reputation. I want to clear my name. I want to defend myself at all costs. But Jesus has no compulsion to justify or save himself. Why? Well, look at when he finally speaks, when he finally responds. Verse 62, all right? We're going to do this a little bit backwards because the high priest asked a question, and this is what Jesus responds with. He says, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So, so Jesus, here's what we need to see. In all of this, through all of this, right? It's not so much that Jesus is defiant. It's not so much that Jesus is determined. It's not so much that Jesus is just exercising a moment of like a sheer force of will here because long before he entered the high priest, he was in a garden where he wrestled with the implications of the wrath and the cup that he must drink of God's vengeance. And he submitted in that moment to the Father's will. So he's standing in the power of his submission, not in the power of his own might. He submitted to the Father's will. And then he's standing in the truth of the confidence of his identity, right? He knows who he is. He knows what he came to do. So there's no need to vindicate or free himself or save himself in this moment because he's already freely submitted to the will of the Father and is willing to lay his life. He's going to lay his life down. So this is all a response to what? To so this question then in verse 61 that the high priest asked him. He said, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Okay, so little backstory here. Why would the high priest say son of the most high blessed, right? Instead of son of the most high God. Well, and I just learned this word yesterday. This is circumlocution, okay? So go out, you can impress all your friends with that word. Basically, he's... He's, he's playing some like verbal gymnastics here, right? So it's a way for them to get around saying God's name out loud, right? So instead of the most high God, which is really the appropriate thing to say, they, he said the most high blessed, right? And, and the reason is for them to speak Yahweh or I am out loud would be blasphemous. 
So that would be bad, right? Because the high priest does not want to be found guilty of blasphemy while he's accusing Jesus of what? Blasphemy, right? But then Jesus' response is so singularly stunning that it creates this very like visceral response in the high priest. He says, he, he, he speaks, Jesus, to his identity in this statement. He speaks to his mission in this statement. He says, I am. And, and while, yes, that's really like a simple way to just answer the question, like it does answer the question, are you these things, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, I'm those things. I am those things. But it's also so much more. He's saying in that moment that more than I am the things that you're saying about me, I am. I am the great I am, the very name that the high priest refused to speak out loud. Jesus not only speaks it out loud, but he also asserts that he is in fact the great I am. He speaks the name of Israel's covenant-making God because he is the fulfillment of the covenant-keeping God. And not only that, but he combines this like Old Testament imagery here. He says that he's the son of man. That's a prominent figure from Daniel 7 who's given power from the ancient of days to overturn evil reign and rule to come back and judge all of creation. So in one simple phrase, right, this is the crux of it right here. This is the crux of everything, everything that Jesus has done. It's the crux of everything that Jesus is about to do because in that simple phrase, Jesus is saying, I am God. It's a name that's been spoken to God's people throughout their history, right? It was spoken to Moses. It was spoken to Abraham. All of God's promises hinge upon his covenant-keeping name, and, and Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of that. I am God's Messiah. I am fulfilling every piece of prophecy spoken about me. I am the yes to every one of God's promises to his people. And here's what he's ultimately saying. He says, you're sitting in a place of authority judging me right now. But as the son of man, I'll be back. And I'll be back and I'll, I'll show up in the clouds. And I'm coming with all authority of my father's kingdom. And I'm coming as the supreme judge. And the next time that you see me, you'll be standing before me. And I'll be judging you. The high priest responds, in verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? Like it doesn't go the way. It didn't have the intended impact that Jesus desired, right? Because he responds he's like, what more do we need to know? This is blasphemy. You've heard this. What, what is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death, right? So the, the high priest basically just goes Hulk on him. He, he completely ignores the fact that Jesus just said, I am the fulfillment. I am the Messiah standing before you. I am David's king that will reign and rule forever. And instead, he just starts ripping his clothes, right? This behavior, of course, is always foreign to us, but it's super normal. It's a normal cultural expression of lament, of frustration, of indignation in first century. So his audience would have understood what the high priest's reaction was in tearing his clothes. He's, he's lamenting. He's frustrated. He's, he's indignant at Jesus's response. And that's like just the effect that Jesus's presence has on people, right? There's, there's no middle ground or indifference to Jesus and his claims. You cannot deny his claims of deity, but really like Jesus as a good moral teacher. That means you're aligning yourself with the morality of a liar, right? So, so nobody in Jesus's day said, yeah, 
like, we know he's not God. We get that. But man, he really, we're, we're going to uphold him as a good moral teacher. That, that never happened, right? That's an invention of our modern sensibilities as we try to make sense of who Jesus was. In Jesus's day, it was either I love him because he's God or I hate him and everything he says because he claims he is God. That's it, right? They either hated him and wanted him dead or they loved him and fell at his feet in worship. So the high priest levels this charge of blasphemy before Jesus and it was defined simply as any dishonoring of God, and it was punishable by death, right? So that's it. They finally have him. He just claimed to be God. That's blasphemy, because we don't believe that he is, so now we can put him to death. None of that is a new accusation, right? They'd been accusing Jesus of that all throughout Mark's gospel. He's blaspheming several occasions, they say it, but they couldn't make it stick, right? Because there was other people. It was daylight, right? It, people would go like, well, we don't think so. But now, closed off from the rest of the nation in this quiet moment, in this endless night for Jesus, when nobody's watching, they can finally make it stick, right? Um, the claim is, is no less justified here this time. Again, nobody's watching. It's not a unique accusation. It's just an unjust accusation, right? And it's taking place while the population of the city sound asleep, there's nobody there to stand up. The only problem is they can't actually carry out the sentence because they were forbidden to publicly execute anyone. So it would fall to the Romans to carry out the sentence. But there's a problem. The Romans don't care about any accusation of blasphemy. What do we care? It's not our God. So in order for all of this to stick for them, they had to convince Rome that he was actually guilty of treason and insurrection so that he could be executed. So we'll see that moving ahead into next week, right? So, so here's the deal. Like that's, that's the meat of the story, right? The, the bread pieces are what, what is Peter up to, right? What Peter's doing? Like that's Jesus' side of the story. But remember, Peter is a part of the story also. What's, what's Peter been doing, right? It's important to realize that these two scenes, as Mark writes them, they're actually happening and unfolding at the same time, right? So there's Jesus on trial before the high priest, innocent in every way, but taking every arrow of accusation that they could sling at him. But Peter will stand a trial of his own. And while these two scenes are running parallel to each other, that's where the similarities cease. So, so I'm not going to do much exposition here in this last piece because I think the story just like speaks for itself. So let me just read it to you. And I kind of want you to get swept up in this moment, right? Jesus is encountering and engaging alone his great passion and this endless night. He's walked ahead where none of us could walk. He has to face it alone. There's no invitation for any of us or any of his disciples to go with him. And then there's Peter, right? And oh, by the way, you're Peter in this story. Like, don't get it wrong. So I want you to get swept up in this and think about the emotions of this moment because there's failure here for Peter. There's shame here for Peter. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came seeing Peter warming himself. She looked at him and said, you also were with Nazar the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went on out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began to, again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't, do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. And he broke down and wept. So in that moment, Peter fails horribly, tragically, just like Jesus predicted. But the good news is that Peter's failures in this moment aren't his future. Listen to what Peter would go on to write from 1 Peter 2.21, which by the way, um, is a good segue into that's where we're going next. We're going to look at Peter's letter. So this is lifted from that. That's where we're going to spend our fall. He's writing to a church that's facing in the midst of horrible persecution and suffering because of Rome. And I think as he writes these words I'm about to read to you, there, there's no doubt in my mind that Peter is looking back to this very night, to this very scene where he denies even knowing Jesus, and he broke down and he wept. And as he reflects back on this night, he writes this. He says, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Does that sound like the same guy who is staggering in the face of a teenage girl and her accusations? Like there's a boldness here. There's, there's a certainty to what he is saying here that seems so unbelievably different than the scene that we just looked at, right? So Peter says that Jesus suffered great injustices to be our example, so that when we suffer injustice and persecution, we can actually look to Jesus. But here's what we need to understand. Jesus is so much more than our example to follow. If he merely was an example, yes, we'd have this amazing example to look to, and just like Peter, we'd fail every time. And so we need Jesus to be so much more than merely an example to us, right? Again, remember, it's not that we can relate to Jesus in his suffering. There's no way that we'll ever walk through what Jesus walks through in this moment, right? He's bearing the weight of the penalty of all sin for all time. So as we experience suffering, Yes, we look to Jesus as an example, but more than that, we trust in the good news of the gospel that holds us and sustains us through.
through it. Because if we just look to Jesus as an example, I think it will crush you, right? It's like trying to be like Mike and think that you're going to make it in the NBA. You won't. You'll fail and flee just like all the other disciples. So we need Jesus to be so much more, and he is. See, Peter recognized, and he gets recognized by this like teenage girl in that moment, in that scene. And, and, and she doesn't know his name necessarily, but she recognizes his face as someone who was friends with Jesus. And so think about this scene. While Jesus is on trial in front of the most powerful person in the country that oversees the most powerful court, Peter's on trial of his own in front of an oil can fire facing this teenage girl. And here's what's going on. There's two trials and two very different outcomes. See, Jesus is falsely accused of something he did not do, and Peter is accused of things that are true about him. Jesus submits himself to these unfolding events, knowing that all of this must happen, while Peter submits himself to a selfish sense of self-protection and self-preservation. Jesus is bound, threatened, and abused by others, and yet he responds passively. Peter is active and unconstrained. He just blurts out his answers to these threatening questions. Jesus is the center of attention in the chief priest's house. Peter is outside, lurking around, hiding in the shadows, blending in with the crowds. Jesus is questioned by the very authorities that have the order or have the ability and the power and authority to order his death while a middle school girl terrifies Peter with her stunning memory and her threatening questions. Jesus is subject to a myriad of false accusations while Peter's accusers only want to know the truth. Jesus answers truthfully, revealing his identity. Peter lies about his friendship with Jesus and denies his own identity. Jesus is accused of blasphemy, but it's Peter who is actually guilty of it as he calls down curses. Jesus is spit on, blindfolded and then viciously beaten, tortured and humiliated at the hands of his own people, while Peter simply humiliates himself. Jesus is found guilty and condemned to death, even though he's absolutely not guilty. Peter is acquitted and set free, even though he is absolutely guilty. And it's intended that way. You see, Peter goes free because Jesus was condemned. It's substitution, it's atonement. Jesus, the innocent and perfect man, stands condemned in the place for those who deserve to be condemned so that the guilty, the liars and the deniers, the rebels and the betrayers could go free so that we could now be declared righteous in the sight of God. Man, I had a whole like different closing written here as of yesterday. And I was like, it would be so easy. It's like a slam dunk to like give you three ways to like not be Peter or follow Jesus. It's like a slam dunk in this passage. And I thought like, listen, like Peter's kind of just the bread here. And the real meat of what we're supposed to look at this passage is King Jesus. Because for King Jesus, the cross, which is looming, it's minutes away for him. That's what's shaping all of his moments. He embraces the cross and gives up his life and shows us in these moments what a disciple is to look like. 
For Peter, self-preservation is shaping all of his moments. He saves his life in this story, but he loses sight of the cross and he loses sight of Jesus. So I want to point you to King Jesus who shows us how to suffer and suffer well, how to submit to the will of the Father and how to live a cruciformed life, a cross-shaping life that loves the Father, submits to him, and loves others. So as we wrap up our time, we point to the cross. The beauty is that points us to the table. The table that we feast on every single Sunday. We get to come in grace. We get to receive in grace Jesus' free gift that we see right here. He's giving up his life already in these moments. He's not defending it. He's already laid it down for us. And so we get to go to the table in light of this passage, in light of King Jesus freely and willingly offering up his body and his blood for us to form his church, to form a people who would go to that table, remember and look forward to the Son of Man returning and setting all things right. So let's worship King Jesus today. Let's receive his grace Let's sing songs of worship and praise. I'd encourage you to take quiet moments and speak to God and communicate with him in prayer. We would ask that if Hub City is your home, um, so if you're here new today and a guest, you don't have, this isn't for you, but we would ask if Hub City is your home, that you would give freely and, and worshipfully. You can do that by giving, there's a box over there that you can give to today physically, or if you want to give online, um, but that's for us that call Hub City our home. And then finally, once again, we get to go to these tables and receive and worship together. So let me pray and let's respond.